0: Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. Well, good morning. Thank you for everyone who's uh, led us this morning so far in worship. I also wanted to say a big thank you to, uh, to, the, to the group that represented us last night at the parade here in Atlantic. Uh, if you couldn't make it, you can check out pictures. So there's uh, pictures on Facebook. Our uh, church Facebook page has some up there, so you can go check that out if you missed it. But thank you so much for representing us as a church. Uh, last Sunday, we finished up with Hebrews, and uh, we did so just in time for Advent. Uh, this morning uh, for Advent, we will be starting into Luke. So we'll be looking at the first two chapters of Luke this month. And uh, it's perfect time to, to look at Luke as we are big looking ahead to the birth of Jesus. So, so let's pray and we'll get right into this morning's passage. <clears throat> Lord, we give you thanks this morning. Thank you for the hope and the peace and the joy and the love that we know in our Savior. And uh, we would just ask now that you would exalt Christ in our hearts Uh, and in our minds, uh, and flowing out of that in our bodies and in our lives as we go on from this place, uh, that in everything, Jesus would be praised. Uh, We thank you for the Gospel of Luke, and we pray uh, that uh, you would speak to us now through this first part of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, for a lot of us, when we think about Christmas, we think about waiting. We think about waiting, and it makes sense. After all, there's so much waiting There's so much waiting involved with Christmas. We wait for packages to arrive in the mail, right? You place an order and, you know, you hope it comes in time. Or maybe you're mailing something to someone. We wait for parties to happen. We wait for presents. We wait for families, visits, and all those kinds of celebrations. And if you're one of those people who doesn't like Christmas, well, then you wait for it to all be over. Uh, You know, there's so much waiting that goes on this time of year. Well, today, as we've said, is the, is the first Sunday of Advent, and uh, Advent is something that the church has been celebrating for centuries, right all through the, the centuries. And, and Advent is a season. It's the four Sundays in advance of Christmas, and it's the, it's the season of, of a season of preparation, but it's also very much a season of waiting. Uh, it's a time of waiting to celebrate the birth of Jesus and getting ourselves ready, our hearts ready, to celebrate. Well, this month we're going to wait together, as I said, by looking at the first two chapters of Luke... And I like to go to Luke because Luke... I mean, I'm just glad we're here this month because Luke gives us more information than anyone else, really, about the birth of Jesus. Matthew tells us some. uh, John sets it in a theological context. But Luke is really the one who gives us the most details about what happened before the birth of Jesus and then those events leading right up to it. And so we're going to look at that story this month. And as the story begins here in the beginning of of chapter 1 we discover that there's a waiting going on. God's people are waiting as the book of Luke opens. There's that little four-verse introduction, which we'll leave aside for now. But as Luke moves into the story he's going to tell, it starts with waiting. And, and their waiting wasn't pleasant. The waiting that we step into, it's, it's not a pleasant waiting like the waiting we do for Christmas. Uh, their waiting was, was kind of desperate, even hopeless. There's a lot of hopelessness as this book begins. Uh, You see it, first of all, in the historical setting with just a few words. Uh, Luke cues us in to how hopeless it is. He says, uh, verse 5 tells us, what I'm about to tell you took place in the time of King Herod of Judea. King Herod of Judea. That's when Jesus was born. If you like timelines and dates, uh, we're talking right at about 4 to 5 BC, uh, toward the end of the almost 40-year reign of this man named Herod. <clears throat> and the thing about Herod, Herod had a few good points. Uh, he wasn't a complete disaster. He was a builder, for example. Uh, even to this day, if you visit Israel, you will you see uh, the remains of some of the dozens of buildings that Herod had happen. He was a big public works guy, uh, and so Israel grew a lot under him that way. But for the most part, Herod was a cruel person. He was a cruel ruler. And so when Luke begins, uh, the Jewish people had been living under, the, really, the tyranny. Tyranny's not too strong a word to use for this guy, Herod. Uh, they'd been living under his tyranny for, for more than three decades, 30 years of a terrible, terrible ruler. Uh, Americans, we get itchy after about two years of a bad leader, right? Uh, 30 years, and they'd been stuck with this guy. And if Herod wasn't bad enough, they had the Romans. And really, the thing about Herod—Herod Herod was just a puppet. He was just a puppet. He was a puppet king installed by the Roman Empire. Uh, the Roman legions had invaded, uh, had, had invaded uh, Israel in pro- three or four decades earlier, and th- so now they were under the iron grip of, of the Roman Empire. And so, the great promise to Israel—the promise of a Messiah, of a king. Like David, who would rule the people with righteousness and goodness, that seemed very much, very far away. It was, it was hopeless. It was hard to see that happening. There were still people holding on to the, the promise of the coming Messiah, but, but it was a hard thing to hope for. Luke also introduces us to a couple. So we kind of we talk about Israel, but he's actually going to he zooms in on a married couple, an older couple, uh, who had their own version of hopelessness, a personal hopelessness. And we meet them in verse five. Their names are Zechariah and Elizabeth. They are both uh, of a priestly line, uh, and and so they're both Levites uh, by way of tribe. And and these two, the important thing we're told about these two in verse seven is that they had no children. They had no children of their own, despite years of trying, because they're older, we're told, uh, despite years of trying, they were chi- chi- trying for a child, they had no child, and in that culture especially, I mean, we feel it even in our own culture, but in that culture, to be childless was an economic and social disaster, and that's what these two lived with. And so, and so they have their own version of hopelessness as the book begins. Uh, they, they'd waited for a baby that never came. And before we get into the the meat of the sermon, I just wonder if any of us in this room can connect with that. I wonder if anybody here can sympathize with that sense of of waiting in a context of of really struggling to hold on to some hope. You you know what I mean? You've been praying the same prayer for months and maybe even years. You've been standing on the same promise for so long you can't remember when your standing started. And, And sometimes, not always, but sometimes you feel hopeless too. You know what that's like. Well, if you do ever feel that way, today's passage is really good news for us. And, and it, is, it is a word of encouragement to us that we see in, this, in, this, in the experience of Zechariah and Elizabeth especially. And it's that we should never stop hoping. We should never stop hoping in the Lord. Because of who he is, because of his faithfulness, because of his character, we should never stop hoping in the Lord. And this is what Zechariah and Elizabeth learn in chapter 1. It's also what the nation of Israel learns, at least all of those who had hearts soft to receive the lesson. Uh, We should never stop hoping in him. So look with me, please. Let's look at Luke chapter 1. We're going to do kind of the first section here. There's a lot here to, to cover. We'll cover as much of it as we can. Uh, but really what you have here is the birth announcement of John the Baptist. Right? John the Baptist, the forerunner of, of Jesus, our Savior. Uh, this is his, this is John's birth announcement. And we're going to go through this and we're going to focus on three things that we can remember in our own seasons of waiting. So when we find ourselves waiting, like Israel's waiting and Zechariah and Elizabeth were waiting, when we have to wait, these three things help us keep hoping. So we want to keep hoping, we want to keep holding on. Well, these three reminders help us do that. So number one, uh, the first reminder that helps us keep hoping in the Lord is that the Lord's promises will be fulfilled. They will be fulfilled. When the Lord God says he's going to do something, he will do it. He may not do it, when we would have done it, he may not do it the way we would have done it, but he will. He will fulfill his promises. Uh, as the passage begins, as I said, there's lots of waiting going on. Uh, Israel's been waiting for her Messiah for centuries. Uh, we heard actually some of it in the, in the reading we had as we lit the candle this morning. You know, that idea of, of four or even five empires, uh, depending how you count them, that had conquered Israel since that promise of a Messiah had been given through the prophet Isaiah. It, it, it was so much waiting, centuries and centuries and centuries of waiting for God to keep the promise to send a Messiah, like, uh, a Messiah who, would, who would save the people. And so the nation, the people of Israel, the Jewish people had been waiting for a very, very long time as the book opens. Uh, as I said, Zechariah and Elizabeth had also been waiting. They had no children, uh, which in their culture means there's no one to take care of them. All right, so maybe there's some other relatives who might, but, but there, there's no pension system. There's no social security. Uh, in, in their culture, uh, as you grow older, who's going to take care of you? It's going to be your, your children, your sons, your daughters, your grandchildren, perhaps. Uh, and so, but they don't have that. That's their safety net, and there isn't one. And so there's, there's that sense of, of struggle that they live with. Uh, there's some, another burden they live with, which is that many of their associates, many of their, their neighbors, and even friends would have considered them to blame. See, and, and, and that's how uh, childlessness was looked at in first century Judaism. It had kind of evolved in such a way that if, if a couple didn't have, have kids, if they were not able to have kids, that was their fault. God was punishing them. They must have had, they must have had some sin, they must have deserved it in some way and and again we're told in the text we're told that they were blameless right luke emphasizes this to us they were not that they were without sin but that they were they were righteous people they were they were godly people they were those who were waiting for the messiah and for the lord's uh, for the lord's promise but that's not how everybody around them would have, would have treated them. So they would have lived with this. Uh, at the end of the passage, Elizabeth will talk about her reproach being removed. This is what she's talking about, this idea that she's at fault for not being able to have kids. And then on top of it, so they've lived with that for decades, and then on top of all that, they are old. Uh, just put it bluntly. Verses, uh, verse 7 says it, verse 18 says it. Uh, it says they're advanced in years and uh, Luke is going to use the exact same phrase to talk about a woman named Anna in chapter 2, and we're told Anna's age. Anna is 84, so we don't, that doesn't mean that Elizabeth is 84 and Zechariah is 84, but they're up there. That's, that's the idea. And so uh, they are beyond. We're actually told both of them, especially Elizabeth, but Zechariah too, are, are beyond their childbearing years. So there's this hopeless situation for these two, and they've spent a lifetime of waiting, and that waiting was never, was never satisfied. It was, it was left, to this point anyway, unfulfilled. But, but, but God, right? But God wasn't going to let any of that stop him from fulfilling his promise uh, to bring the Messiah. And, and I, I want to say at this point, we don't know that there was a promise to Zechariah and Elizabeth that they'd have a son, like So that's not the promise, but the promise he's fulfilling through them is the promise to send the Messiah. That's in this first point, the promise we're talking about being fulfilled. And, and the Lord has set this all up so that he's going to do it now. And we see this, the, the first hints of this. So there's kind of waiting and hopelessness here at the beginning. But then in verses 8 and 9, we start to get to, to, the, to the good stuff here. Uh, so verse 8, now while Zechariah was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty... According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by Lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So verse 8 says that Zechariah's turn came up, right? That's 8 and 9. His turn came up to serve as a priest before God. And you and I read that, and it sounds very, you know, just another day at the office, right? I mean, he's a priest. This is what priests do, right? Uh, But the reality, when we take a few minutes to to understand what verses 8 and 9 Are referring to uh, the reality is that this was not at all a typical thing in the life of a Jewish priest in the first century Uh, let me do a little math with you Um, scholars tell us just kind of you know based on population estimates and this sort of thing uh, scholars estimate that there were about 18,000 men who were eligible for temple service so there were about 18,000 male priests men uh, in this time period who were eligible to do what Zechariah is going to do in this they were organized into 24 divisions. So it mentions his division came up. So you got 18,000 men, 24 divisions. Um, if, we'll, if we assume uh, that each of those divisions is roughly equal in size, that's 750 men, right? So 700, it's not like we have a list of these, we're just doing some math, but 750 men uh, in each division. Uh, those divisions because there were 24 of them those divisions would typically serve uh, two weeks a year so so your division would come up once a year and you'd go to the temple and you'd serve you'd come in from the surrounding areas where you live you'd come into jerusalem to the city and you'd spend two weeks your division was responsible for temple service for those two weeks Of those 750, so what is it they had to do? Well, so the temple piece, I mean, there's lots of stuff that happened, but for the inside the temple piece, uh, twice a day, once in the morning and once in the afternoon, one of those priests would go inside and take care of the incense, which I'll describe a little bit more in a minute. Um, They would go inside and take care of the incense. So out of those 750, we're talking 14 guys. In any given year, only 14 of them From that division of the 750 would be uh, and the way they would choose them is they would cast lots right they'd they'd roll the dice as it were to pick which one of the set which which 14 got to do it that time so when you put that stuff together when you realize the numbers we're dealing with and and how this only happened once a year when their time would come up uh, you realize that uh, this is not at all a typical thing. In fact, the, the, the general thought is that Zechariah probably only got to do this once. He probably only got to do it one time. That, that's the idea here. Uh, and, and this is where we see God's providence in this. We see God's hand on this. Uh, because the, the, the lot falls to Zechariah. Right, so we see that statement here in the text, and we kind of go, ah, that's, you know, hey, his, his number came up. Um, but that's not the Bible's perspective on the casting of lots. And I've, I've quoted this verse before because it's the best one on this, but you know, Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Right? There's no such thing as luck. Uh, for for those who understand the providence of God. And so when we read here in verses 8 and 9 that Zechariah, the lot fell to Zechariah, what we are meant to see is the strong providence of God. This is, it's time. It's time for God to do the thing that he's going to do. The time for the promise. It comes back to this idea of the promise. The promise to send the Messiah had finally arrived. Sometimes it feels like our own waiting. We think about that context of Israel waiting and this couple waiting, uh, but especially Israel because we haven't gotten to the couple's promise yet. We haven't gotten to their, uh, their joy. Uh, but we think about that waiting, and, and it feels like it's, it's gone on so long right? And, and, and even feels hopeless. I think the hopelessness of Zechariah and Elizabeth is instructive for us here. How you know, He did not go into that temple that day expecting what was going to happen. There's no question that he, that he was expecting such a thing to happen. And, and it helps us to remember that, if, that this is how the Lord is. If, if he promises to do something, if he says he's going to do something, he will do it. That, that's the emphasis here. Uh, we may not know, again, we may not know his timing, or we may not know his methods. I mean, there's a lot in the, the fulfillment of the promise of the coming of the Messiah that catches everybody by surprise. But the fundamental fact of it is, is that he is faithful to his promise. And that's one of the things we're meant to see here. And and that applies for us, too. There's a principle here about what our God is like. Uh, We stand on those same promises, and we can count on them. We can count on his promises in our own times of waiting and in our own hopeless, seemingly hopeless situations. Uh, I think, for example, of the promise of provision. Jesus said, Jesus said, you, I will take care of your needs. I will take care of you, he said. And so we can count on that. Now there's lots of room in there on what that's going to look like, but we know that he will provide for our needs. Uh, he's promised comfort for the grieving. And so if you're grieving or if you're afflicted right now, the scriptures promise. You know, Chad read one of, the, one of the promise passages when he opened us up with Psalm 46. Uh, he promises comfort for the grieving and hope for the afflicted. I think even of the promise of Christ's return. You know, sometimes I, I read a, a newspaper or an online news site and I'm like, oh man, what are you waiting for? You know, and he is, he's gonna come. You know, will it be t- tomorrow? I don't know, but he will return. And so we can count on that one too. We can count on the, on the ultimate promise of the return of Jesus Christ. And so there's a principle here. In our times of waiting, in our times of, of struggling and trying to beat back hopelessness, uh, the Lord's promises will be fulfilled. And so keep hoping they will be fulfilled. Number two, the second reminder that helps us keep hoping in the Lord. So number, reminder number two is that the Lord's provision will be better than we hoped. He will do more uh, than we ask. The Lord's provision is worth the wait. And and this is, you see this in scripture a lot of times, not all the time, but but a lot of times we aim too low. A lot of times we aim too low. We expect too little from our all-powerful God. Uh, But he has a way of going far beyond what we're asking or imagining or hoping for. And I think we see this very clearly in this text with Zechariah and Elizabeth. It'll also be true for the Messiah, but that's going to take decades to unfold. But Zechariah and Elizabeth see it in real time. They see it right there. Uh, Let's look at how God's uh, provision for them is better than they'd ever dared to hope. I'm going to pick up in verse 10. I'll read through uh, 12 for now says, and the whole multitude, so remember Zechariah, the lot fell to him, he's going to go do his job inside. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside the temple at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw the angel and fear fell upon him. So as we said before, this uh, trip into the temple would have been anything but routine for Zechariah. Uh, this was a special moment for him in a way. You could say it was the highlight of his career as a priest. Our, our I mean, our, our best guess is that this a priest would have served this way once, maybe twice, in a typical priestly career. And so he would have remembered this day for the rest of his life, even if an angel hadn't shown up. Right? He'd remember this one forever. But uh, let's just take a moment to understand uh, what he's doing in there, because I think it helps us to appreciate it. So why is he going in? What's he going to do? Well, we're told, uh, verse 9 says he his job is to go in and burn incense. And so actually, the fact that we studied Hebrews this year helps us, those of us who were here those weeks. Um, he, he's going inside of the temple, and there's Not a lot of stuff inside. Uh, There's kind of three main pieces of furniture. There's uh, on the on the on the left is this uh, big lamp stand, the menorah, the 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 the, the candle. I don't know, big big candelabra kind of a thing, big big um, candle holder. Um, On the right is the table, right, this gold table for the bread of of the presence, the show bread it's called sometimes. And then in front of them is a, a an altar. It's not a huge altar. It's a smallish sort of a thing, with where the incense would be burned. And then behind that altar is a big uh, curtain, and that curtain he knows behind that curtain is a a room where the presence of God is. Right, that's where that's the holy of holies. And so he comes into this inner room. He's by himself; nobody's with him. And his job is to go up to that altar and and take care of the incense, Uh, according to the law of Moses. This was done twice a day, once in the morning, once in the evening. And the timing actually coincided with the major hours, the the two major hours of public prayer. So if you wonder why there's a crowd outside in verse 10, the reason is that it's prayer time. And so faithful Jews have gathered to pray outside of the temple. And there's always, especially for the faithful Jews who have bothered to gather, there's always just a little bit of a sense of tension. Now, when something's done every day, twice a day, you kind of get used to it, but still, there's just a little bit of a sense of tension because everybody knows, especially the priest who's going inside, that he's going up to the presence of God, right? Everybody knows what's on the other side of that curtain. It's, it's Yahweh himself in the way they understood things. And so uh, the whole thing is prescribed. It's kind of, uh, it's predictable, it's efficient. He's supposed to go in and do what he's supposed to do. Right? You know, like I say, he goes in, he spreads the incense, he's actually supposed to clean up the ashes from the last time, spread the incense, say a prayer, there's a specific prayer he's supposed to say for the salvation and deliverance of Israel, and then he's going to get out of there, because you're not going to linger. Right? He's not in there to sightsee, he's in there to do his job and get out again. I think all of that helps us understand, uh, somewhat, why he is startled. Right? He's so startled, because the program changes. Right? Nobody ever said anything about an angel. None of the other guys who've ever gone in and did this came out and said there was an angel. So he goes in and there's an angel. And so he's startled by this as he's he's doing his job. Let's read some more. I'll pick up in verse 13 here. Uh, He says, but the angel, let's hear what the angel's got to say. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth There's going to be more on that in the later expansion in this chapter, but Zechariah is schooled enough in all of this to know that he's being told his son is going to be the forerunner to the Messiah. That's what those words mean. I'm going to spend a ton ton of time on the angel's actual words, but but that's what that means. Your son is going to be the forerunner to the Messiah. That's what he's told. And so Zechariah is doing doing his job with the incense. Angel appears he's afraid that is the right response to an angel Uh, when you see an angel uh, however this angel says don't be afraid i got some good news your prayer has been heard i got good news the angel says your prayer has been heard if you look carefully at the text it should make you ask a question the question is what prayer what prayer what prayer has been heard uh, there are actually two options. Most of us think we know the answer to this one. And in the end, I think they, they're, they're both the right answer. But there's actually two options as you look at the, the question here. Um, one option is it's the prayer for the deliverance of Israel. Because like I said, there's a specific prayer that they would pray and it would, you know, for the salvation and deliverance of God's people. And so option one is that your prayer for the deliverance and salvation of the people has been answered. Option two is more personal. Option two is the prayer Zechariah has been praying for years to have a child. That, that's a prayer Zechariah has prayed as well. And I'm actually inclined, I just said it a minute ago, I'm inclined to see both here. I'm inclined to see both. The prayer for his son comes from the fact that that's all that he talks about. The angel focuses in on the son. So when he says your prayer has been answered, it's very natural to take this as your prayer for a son because that's what he starts telling him about. And yet, what are we told about that son? We're told, all those things I said a minute ago, that that son is going to be the forerunner to the to the Messiah. And so that prayer has been answered too, Zechariah. Good news, your prayer for the deliverance and salvation and yours and and that of all the other priests and all the other people, that prayer is about to be answered too. And so it's both. I would argue it's both. Maybe it's the son first, but then it's, it's also the... the uh, The prayer for a deliverer because that's what this is all starting all of this is set into motion now and this now especially that sun part this is where we see the better than we hoped for part Um, so God heard Zechariah right he'd been praying as I say for decades 20 years 30 years 40 years perhaps Uh, God could have answered this prayer but instead the Lord waited he waited he pressed beyond the boundaries of what any human being could do and he he waited till now he waited until it was not just almost impossible, he waited until it was impossible for this older couple to have a baby. And now he's going to give them a baby. Now he's going to give them a son. And not just any son either. Uh, their son, their son would wear the mission, would, he would bear the mission and the mantle of the prophet Elijah. Which, again, Jews who, not all Jews understood this, but those who had studied the scriptures, many of them expected there to be someone just like john a forerunner who would come in the spirit and in the ministry the mission and the mantle of elijah in fact many of them expected actual elijah to come uh, they expected him to come back down from heaven basically because remember he's the one who got caught up in the whirlwind some of them were expecting that uh, and and that's what he's being told here so your son your son is the promised elijah that, that's really what he's been told, being told here And I got to tell you, in their wildest dreams, Zechariah and Elizabeth never expected a son like that. That's not what they were praying for. They weren't praying for a son like that, and yet a son like that is exactly what God is going to give them. That's what this angel tells him. And I think it's the same thing for us not the specific details, right? I mean, not, not the specific details. I want to be careful here. These two are special, right? Zechariah and Elizabeth are chosen for a special one-off kind of a mission, right? So uh, I'm not saying, you know, I don't want anybody laying claim to, you know, my child's the, the, you know, the next great prophet. That, that's not the point. But the point is that there's a principle here about what God is like. And the principle is that his provision for us tends to be better than we expect, his answer, his answers to our prayers are better than we dare to hope. The power he wants to work in our lives is actually more potent than our feeble imaginations tend to do. And, and that helps us if we realize that our God is like that. How does Paul say it in one of the epistles? You know, he, he does a beyond what we, what we ask or imagine. And if we can remember that, it helps us keep hoping. It helps us hold on to our hope and keep trusting in the Lord. Uh, nothing's going to stop him doing what he wants to do in our lives. That's number two. Uh, Number two, or excuse me, number three, finally. uh, The third reminder, and I find this one the most encouraging of the three, just in terms of my own own self these days. The third one is that the Lord's plans do not depend on us. The Lord's plans do not depend on us. Now, the Lord likes to use us. He likes to include us in his plans, and it's a great honor to be used in his plans, but don't ever forget that he doesn't need us. He doesn't need us for his plans. His plans do not depend on us. And so when we mess up, like Zechariah does here, uh, when we mess up, the Lord's plans uh, move forward anyway. And we, we see this in, uh, in the next part, maybe the more, uh, f- the more famous part of this passage. I'll pick up in verse 18. Just this verse. Uh, verse 18 says, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? So he's just been told all this stuff about this son of his. He says, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. So Zechariah, apparently his brain immediately goes to, you know, what his understanding of the biology is and what's happened for the last 30 or 40 years, and he says, well, why should I believe you? Sorry, Mr. Angel, but how can I be sure of this? And so really, in effect, what he does, he doesn't use the word, but what he's asking for is a sign. Zechariah asks for some kind of proof that what the angel just told him is going to actually happen. Now, don't be too hard on Zechariah. Don't don't be too hard on him. Uh, Remember what we were told in verses 6 and 7. He is a righteous man, blameless in his walk before the Lord. And besides, he had precedent. He had precedent. There are lots of examples, actually, in the scripture where the Lord uh, gave people some sort of a sign that he was about to do something. Uh, father Abraham, right? Abraham himself asked for a sign. And when, when the Lord makes his promise to, to Abraham that you know, he would be the father of many nations, he basically asks the same thing. How can I know? And then that leads to this covenant ceremony that takes place in Genesis 15. Abraham asked for a sign. Gideon famously asked for a sign. The Lord said, I'm going to send you to the Midianites, and you're going to go defeat them. And and Gideon's like, well, prove it. That was was Gideon. And so it's not unprecedented in Scripture for for God to give a sign. God does give signs. So what's the problem? Well, the problem in this case is that the Lord had just given the sign. He already gave the sign. You say, where? I missed it. Where's the sign? The sign is the angel. I think that's how we're supposed to read this. Gabriel is the sign. And so by looking at the sign and saying, can I have a sign? Zechariah is, what he's revealing is a heart of unbelief. He, he, he doubts in a way. Next week, we'll look at Mary. He doubts in a way that Mary doesn't doubt. He, he doesn't believe it, really. Zechariah doesn't believe it. That's, that's the mistake. That's the sin that he commits here in this situation. Uh, let's, let's read some more uh, to see how this works. Uh, I'll pick up in 19. So he says, uh, how shall I know? The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. (laughs) I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah outside and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. Remember, he's supposed to get out of there quick. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized he'd seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them, and he remained mute. I'm the sign. I, I do. That's how I take that. That's how I think. That's what Gabriel is saying. He says, Zechariah says, "Give me a sign." The angel says, "I was just in the presence of God, and I brought you this message from Him." There's a you know the big glowing guy with the wings. That's that's your sign, and so he says, "Give me a sign." And, and I, love what, what, uh, I love what God does next, though. Look what the Lord does next to this point that his plans don't depend on us. He actually, in his grace, gives Zechariah another sign. So the, the angel wasn't enough for Zechariah with where he was at at that point. So the Lord gives him another sign. You say, what's the sign? The sign is the silence. I think sometimes we read this passage as if it's a punishment, that God is punishing Zechariah because of his unbelief. I don't think that's the right way to read it. It's the sign. And it's a sign that matches his doubt. So what did Zechariah do? Zechariah doubted God's word. So the Lord says, all right, I'll give you a sign. And it's in keeping with your doubting of my word. You doubt my word, I'll take your words. Which maybe feels a little harsh, but it's, it's not a punishment. I think it's a sign to match where he doubted. That, that's the idea. And so he is mute. He is mute for the next nine plus months until, until the baby is born. And so the Lord graciously gives him a sign, a hard sign to bear, but a sign. And then notice what happens. Notice what happens. Despite Zechariah's doubt, and as I've said, it's a genuine doubt, the Lord goes ahead with the plan. He still does the plan. Gabriel does not say, I'm out of here we're done. Game over. That's it. You blew it, Zechariah. Time to go find somebody with more faith. We'll, we'll wait two more months and find a different priest who can handle it better than you can. That's not what happens. That's not it. Instead, the Lord goes ahead exactly with what he'd already purposed to do. Remember, the lot fell to Zechariah. The lot fell to Zechariah. That was the Lord's choice. This is the couple he wants to do this part through. And so the Lord's plan does not depend on Zechariah getting it everything right. And, and as I say, I don't know about you, but that gives me a whole lot of hope. Yes, Zechariah messed up, right? He messes up in this text, but his mistake doesn't ruin God's plan. God's plan for Zechariah's life does not depend on Zechariah doing everything perfect. Same thing for Israel, right? It's a, it's a principle from Scripture. Israel made so many mistakes. Just read your Old Testament, right? They made so many mistakes over the years. And yet at no point does God throw them to the, to the ash heap of history and say, forget it, I'm gonna go get another people. It's not, not what he does. Same thing for you, same thing for me. God's plans for our lives do not depend on us. Yes, yes, we make it harder sometimes. And I think that's where, the, you know, that's where sin comes in. Uh, you see that here with Zechariah. Zechariah made this thing harder than it needed to be with his, his response of unbelief. But he does not derail What God is planning to do. You see that in His case. And the same thing is true for us. The the Lord, yeah, we've messed up. We've made mistakes. We repent. We turn. We keep going with the Lord. And He continues to do what He has purposed to do in our lives. Before we go to the the table, we're going to go to share the Lord's Supper this morning. It's the first Sunday of the month. Before we do that, I want to make one more point with this text. And what I I simply want to do is I just want to point out what happens, what we're headed for, what we're holding out for when we keep hoping in the Lord, because what happens is joy. Joy is the outcome. That's the result. When we hold on and keep hoping in the Lord, the ultimate outcome is joy. Uh, we see this in our text a few different places. We see it, uh, first of all, in the, in, it's subtle in what we've read so far, but even in what we've read so far, there is a marked shift in the change of mood, even just in the first 25 verses. So the passage opens on a gloomy note, and I tried to show that, right? I mean, you, first, Verse 5, um, Zechariah and Elizabeth are childless. Herod is the king. Right? It's, it's just all gloomy. Uh, Romans are around. They don't mention the Romans, but we know that contextually. And there's no Messiah. Right? That's what we open with. But then, as the Lord announces... Right? The Lord announces what, that, that he's going to move. Right? Here we go, Zechariah. It's coming. Right? He starts talking about Elijah and all these things. And I'm going to fulfill my promise. That gloom starts to shift. Right? So it's like a cloud, like the fog this morning that, that starts to clear. Hopefully, it'll be all cleared by the time we leave. And it begins to give way to this joy. You see it with Zechariah. Right? You see it in the, the Lord's answer. Uh, he says, my, my answer to your prayer is going to bring you joy, Zechariah. So verse 14. Uh, he, the son, will be a joy and a delight to you. You were all gloomy in verse 5. By verse 14, he's being promised joy. And if you want to see what his joy looks like, just read ahead. <laughs> read ahead, verses 64 through 80. You'll see what Zechariah's joy looks like. It's also joy for Israel, though. It's not just for Zechariah and Elizabeth. This isn't just about them. Uh, verse 14 goes on to say, many will rejoice. Right? So it's joy for Israel, too, and joy for us Gentiles, ultimately. Many will rejoice because of his birth but then where you really see it is is the joy of an elderly woman who finally receives the deepest longing of her heart and you see that with Elizabeth let me just read the last few verses there Uh, verse 23 when Zechariah's time of service was ended, the two weeks were up he went to his home and after these days his wife Elizabeth conceived and for five months she kept herself hidden saying thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me, to take away my reproach among people. So Zechariah finishes his business trip. He goes home to his wife. They are reunited. And Luke tells us that soon after, Elizabeth becomes pregnant. She who was barren, right? He uses kind of a harsh word back in verse 7. She was barren. By the time we get to verses 24, 25, she's carrying a baby. She's conceived a child. And, and you see her joy, and again, it's, it's muted so far. It expands as the chapter goes on, but already we see her joy in verse 25. The Lord has taken away my reproach. He's taken it away. She has joy. Joy uh, is, is the outcome when we keep hoping in the Lord.